Welcome to This Human Business, a podcast that explores the growing movement in business to reassert a prominent role for human experience in the culture of commerce. My name is Jonathan Cook, and I'm a qualitative researcher making my living studying the strange nooks and crannies of commercial culture, the irrational experiences that bring a dose of real humanity into the world of business. In last week's episode, we considered the ways that businesses engage in storytelling, even when they aren't aware that they're doing it. This week, we're going to reconsider the story of the digital revolution, shifting it away from a tale of technological tinkering into a battle over the meaning of what it means to be human. People commonly think of the digital revolution as a technological development, but really it's just as much an expression of ideas we have as it is about the objects that those ideas make possible. Digital technology is a tool of information processing and as such an outgrowth of a particular kind of research, quantitative research. The biggest corporations these days make their money by mining quantified data from the ore of human behavior, trading it between each other, and using it to try to convince us to buy things. The businesses that have been built upon platforms of digital technology are really research firms as much as anything else, selling methods and products of quantitative research. For this reason, if we're trying to find alternatives to the dominant business model to discover a more human kind of commerce, the best way to begin that quest is to seek out alternative forms of research. The commercial ideology that values efficiency over human experience, after all, is a direct outgrowth of the kinds of questions and the kinds of answers that quantitative research is capable of working with. In this episode of This Human Business, we will be looking for new kinds of questions and new ways of asking them. I will begin with a discussion I had with a quantitative researcher. Why? As much as this podcast talks about the importance of non-quantified forms of experience, it's not intended as a rejection of quantitative research. The point is more subtle than that. Besides, this particular discussion comes with a special twist. Meet my identical twin, James Cook. He's a quantitative researcher, a professor of sociology who studies network theory at the University of Maine. I'm involved in multivariate hypothesis testing, which involves multiple regression, which is really at its fundamental basis all about prediction of some characteristic that varies according to the value of a number of other characteristics that vary. So that involves the collection in standard individual level research of two-dimensional data sets in which one dimension is representing cases that you observe and another dimension in the data set represents qualities that you observe. The other aspect in terms of research method that I have is to think beyond that regarding the characteristics of relationships between people in structures called social networks, in which it is no longer individual cases, whether those would be people or individual groups or individual communities that you would study, but instead the relations between them. So that blows out standard multivariable research in a two-dimensional data set into a third dimension in which every possible variable that you could have describing relations between people is two-dimensional in which both 
of those dimensions are sets of people and uh, a single value in that two-dimensional data set for a single variable. The areas in which I do my research are in primarily political networks in state legislatures and in online networks uh, that exist on social media. And I, I touch on other ideas, primarily regarding the notion of identity, the creation of identity, the negotiation of identity, when identity is hidden, when it is shown in gender contexts, and when in online environments um, it is possible to recreate new aspects of identity, um, given the virtual rather than physical nature of the internet. But that's a quick summation of the kind of research that I do. And I would say that in that research, I work with numbers. And so you could say I'm a quantitative researcher, but each of those numbers is really a representation of a quality of some kind. My twin and I were sitting down to talk about the differences between us that had developed over time. You may have noticed that he doesn't like to talk about the same kinds of things that I do. I pointed this out to him. I noticed that you and I speak very differently. Really? Yeah. Like, I'm seeing you close your eyes in an, what I'm interpreting as an attempt to make sure that you're really precisely expressing the thoughts that you're having and you're very meticulous and I feel kind of sloppy and uh, wandering in comparison to the way that you do things, which I'm okay with. I'm okay. There's some comforts in living that way. But I'm wondering what you make of the fact that you and I came into the world with the identical genetic abilities, predispositions, all the things that come from that. And yet we have chosen these lives that are Very different similar. in important ways. Well, similar because <laughs> we both like doing research. But the kind of research that we do is in some ways uh, you could say, I don't know, opposite, but really quite distinct. Right? What do you make of that? I don't know what to make of it because what I enjoy doing when I'm not engaged in that research is in, in, in participating in political protest and uh, singing and doing theater, uh, which are not precise and meticulous acts. So I think um, that it may be that my need for, and I don't like your distinction between meticulousness and sloppiness, I would say my need for experience that transcends categorization is filled through these other avenues. And it may be that your need for tractability is maybe there and addressed in other ways. And that it might be a mistake for us to only look at the work that we do that we call research as an indication of the full scope of our lives. My brother and I fit the stereotype of identical twins in that we both do the same sort of work. We're both researchers. We defy the stereotype though, by performing research in profoundly different ways he with numbers, and me with feelings and experiences that cannot be quantified. How can such distinct practices both exist in the same category of activity, research? What is research anyway? Perhaps the best way to understand research is to compare it to the more simple form of its root word, search. Search is etymologically related to the words circus, circle, and circuit, coming out of the Latin word circare, meaning to go out and wander around. In the last few decades, 
We've been taught to think of circuits as highly engineered electronic mechanisms used in precise, mathematically-based information processing. But that was not the original sense of the word. Think of what we mean when we call a process circuitous, and you get closer to the character of this group of terms. It's anything but the shortest route between two points. Another good cousin of search is the word circulate, suggesting a fluid condition full of uncertainty. We may seek solid information, but search itself is anything but solid. Once we get to hard facts, the search itself is over. The end state of search is not at all similar to the process itself. Google, one of the biggest players in digital commerce, built itself on search, but did so with the ironic promise that it could make search less circuitous. Google made the circle of search into a straight line, and in doing so sharpened the distinction between search and research. The only difference between search and research in the way that you spell them is the prefix re, but those two little letters change the character of the word dramatically. The prefix re changes a word by adding both the sense of performing an act more than once and the sense of going back to the origin from which a journey has begun. It suggests a repetition, a reconsideration, and a return to a simple search, suggesting that the search has become full of uncertainty, double-checking, and self-reflection. Search is a literal task. A search either finds something or it doesn't. In a simple search, when the thing we're looking for is found, the search is over. With research, though, we don't stop with the initial accomplishment of just finding something. Researchers take the thing they've found and then search again and again within what we've found and around it, always trying to go further into the mystery. Researchers search through their search itself, considering the path that they've taken to get to that destination. A search is satisfied when it finds an answer. Research finds its purpose in questions. So, research is much more meditative than mere searching. Research is an activity as much about the experience of the person going along that journey as the destination that it reaches. To research is therefore a multi-layered process. It can be thought of as a spiral, a circling that moves deeper and deeper into a subject rather than remaining at its surface. The shifting, swirling movement of the best research processes move between quantitative and qualitative methods, but the excessive emphasis on quantitative methods in both digital technology and business management have flattened that spiral in our commercial culture taking its philosophical dimension away, diminishing what had been research back into mere search. Google's algorithmic engine can do search, but it takes a human being to perform true research. When search is allowed to replace research, there are grave consequences. And Julia von Winterfeld, the CEO of SoulWorks told me about what happened to her when she experienced those consequences firsthand. I like to tell the story that I, the reason I started SoulWorks was I was, I came to an epiphany when I realized every month I was flying over to London from Berlin at the time to present my numbers. And when my numbers were great, it was a two minute conversation. When my numbers weren't great, um, I, you know, being well prepared, I had all of my arguments, but it was just a numbers game. And every time when it was good, there was still frustration, like you can do better, you can you know, hit the top line by X percent more, you can, you know, you've got to do more on your bottom line. And I just recognized, I don't want to run a company on numbers. That's not 
who I am. And if that's how I can progress in my career and that's how I've got to be, then, then that's not the right space for me. I'm uh, certainly, uh, you know, not against numbers. I think it is important to uh, look at money uh, uh, being energy and being worthy of what you're providing. But what really disturbed me was that it was just that that was on the agenda. There was less, if at all, conversation around what are the products that you're building, what is making them so uh, useful or so meaningful for clients and their uh, clients to be using. Uh, there wasn't any conversation around the people um, and you know how people are engaging and what type of uh, form of work that they're actually doing. No business can afford to completely ignore the numbers that reflect the health of its operations. A business culture that allows numbers to become the reason for its existence, however, will alienate those people with the most to give. Numbers games will best be run by artificial intelligence. It's only a matter of time before AI takes over these kinds of jobs. The trouble is that AI is so darned intelligent that it's predictable. Quantitative analysis will lead all competently designed data-driven businesses to the same conclusion, leading them into the trap of commoditization in which the products and services offered by every company in a given category will be essentially the same. Data-driven management also prioritizes numbers over human needs leading to alienation and exhaustion. Studies by people like Dr. Barry Schwartz show that employees are not motivated by the financial rewards that numbers-focused corporations tend to emphasize. They're motivated by the feeling that there is meaning in their work. Quantitative research is necessary to keep a company running, but it can't be all that we do. Competitive advantage in consumer insight and company culture will come from the distinctive perspective that comes from human research. Researcher Nina Kruschwitz explained to me the necessary role of mystery and delight in business insight. If there's a mystery, there's a message there. It says, pay attention. There's something to learn here. I dread the linear approach that wants to look at the mystery and just disassemble it and take it into all its little parts and then make it do something else <laughs> that's not honoring the totality of what that mystery is. You know, research requires taking some time and being inquisitive, um, hopefully from a place of respect, you know, being comfortable with not knowing and maybe not even knowing it all at the end point, but honoring the idea of whatever is there, whatever you're looking at, that it has its own integrity and its own reason for being the way that it is, which, which doesn't mean that it's not gonna change. It just means that the way it is at the moment that you're relating to it um, and understanding why that's so is really, well, it's beautiful and can open up all kinds of different ways of knowing and how to proceed. As Nina points out, there is always opportunity for delight in any human activity. And yes, that includes business management. Wherever there are human beings, there is a human drama at work. But unless that drama is obvious, artificial intelligence won't be able to ferret it out and merely working with the obvious is insufficient in business. It takes a human researcher to make the trusting connections with people that enable emotionally vulnerable revelations. A side effect of those connections that are fostered through human research is that they contribute to the repair of company culture in themselves. Simply doing research in a warm, compassionate way starts the healing. Traditional organizational research and market research doesn't work that way, of course. It emphasizes outcome over process. 
Bhavik Joshi, strategic director at LPK, explains that if we are going to establish new forms of rigorously human research, we will need to dig a little deeper and adopt unconventional techniques. That's the struggle of everyday strategy work. <laughs> um, so in the typical sense of a project, uh, we uh, at LPK, we do brand design and brand experience and brand innovation. So the project that we get is to essentially take something from the brand equity and kind of bring it to life in, in a visual way. That's kind of the task that are usually given to LPK. Uh, so there's a design uh, counterpart to the project and there's a strategy counterpart to the project. In typical projects, we are given an insight, or at least what a client would call an insight. Um, the first uh, step in which I am able to introduce a methodology or an approach or a mindset to kind of infuse some of that deeper meaning is to challenge that insight. It's not just an exercise uh, in academics. It's because sometimes, or most times, the insights are extremely observational. Um, the best of them have made a keen observation about a certain conscious, rational behavior that is extremely category-centric. So it is around the product category that the consumer is interacting in. Uh, the worst of them kind of just seem like platitudes. They feel like and sound like something that somebody would say even without having spent the money to do the research, right? So the first... Uh, opportunity that I get to kind of infuse deeper meaning into this is to try and challenge that insight and to, with the help of an understanding of not just the general human condition, uh, but understanding of subconscious desires. We, we use a methodology at LPK, which is based on Professor Reese from Ohio State University, his uh, 16 hardwired human desires model. So it's, quite, it's a desires methodology. So try and understand what could be one of those desires that is undergirding this uh, very rational behavioral sense. And then again, if the project opportunity allows for that, if there's room to flex, then we kind of go out and do some discovery of our own, try and talk to consumers through unconventional uh, modes and methodologies, try and see some of the expressions that they're leaving behind on their social footprints, and then try and go even one level deeper to try and understand, okay, what could be under, underlying the subconscious motivations and desires? Uh, is there anything more archetypal at play here? Uh, something that's happening beyond the realm of, of uh, their conscious choices that they're making. So trying to anchor that surface level product category centric insight into something that is slightly more universal, slightly crosses those boundaries of segmentation uh, so that this doesn't feel specifically about, you know, 25 to 44-year-old graduate almond milk drinkers, <laughs> but it feels <laughs> slightly more universal to the human condition, is what gives you the rich fodder both verbally and visually to go beyond. So it's not only helpful for me to then start crafting the foundational pieces of a brand equity in terms of a proposition or what could be the tone of voice and character, but then my design partner is also able to look at it and be like, okay, I can do something with this. If you were to just tell me that, this is about feeling confident because your scalp is not itchy because your shampoo doesn't make your head dry, then I don't know what to do with it. But if you take it down to the levels of status or levels of ego, then I'm able to kind of do something with it and create something that might have some more meaning. So that's, that's a glimpse into one of the methodologies that we use to kind of get to a deeper level of insight. The truth is, the data do not speak for themselves. So Bhavik Joshi shows us some of the interesting kinds of materials that come when a business trusts human-to-human -human contact in unconventional research. We get beyond the boundaries of segmentation, past the rudiments of personas, into the strange territories of archetypal subconscious desires. 
this material is unusual enough to give designers the ability to go beyond mere category level applications. I was struck during a conversation with former journalist Jeff Kaufman, now CEO and founder of Trent, by his willingness to allow for human imperfections in the research process. Trint is a fascinating company, and we'll learn more about Jeff's work there in future episodes of this podcast. But for now, I want to focus on a comment that he made about the role of stupid questions in his interviewing style. You don't beat yourself up about taking the wrong turn. Uh, being decisive, it turns out, is an incredibly useful skill when you're running a startup. I have to make literally dozens of decisions every day. I have no business degree, no business background. I know how to ask questions. Uh, I have no shame about asking stupid questions. I think any good reporter would say that. You know, better to ask the stupid questions before you go to print or go on air than to, to have to make, make excuses for getting it wrong. So uh, I'm really, I'm good at asking questions and I'm good at finding answers. And I think any reporter is. I'm a curious guy and I love, I love to ask questions. And uh, my interviews were often a little longer than they needed to be for stories that were so short because I was just so interested in the people and always looking for something that gave me insights that, that I could share with the audience, uh, with the viewers. And so I spent a lot of my life transcribing interviews, speeches, news conferences, lectures. We underestimate in our embrace of artificial intelligence the enormous potential contained within the posture of curious human stupidity. I don't mean, of course, plain idiocy or willful ignorance. What I'm talking about is the path that leads not just to intelligence, but to wisdom. Stupidity is not the same thing as being dim-witted, after all. It's more like the state of mind we experience when we are struck dumb. It's linked to curiosity, the feeling of being simultaneously delighted and mystified by what a person has to say. What Jeff Kaufman has, and what all good human researchers have that artificial intelligence systems lack, is the experience of interest to leaven their ignorance. We can program bots to ask follow-up questions based on pattern recognition in linguistic routines, but we cannot program them to do what Jeff Kaufman could not stop himself from doing, taking longer with an interview than required by explicit research protocols to follow his nose down a path that seemed to hint at something unexpected. The thing is, Jeff Kaufman now works with artificial intelligence, not to replace human researchers, but to assist them in the more mundane elements of their work. It's not that qualitative methods offer the only right way to do research while the quantitative is wrong. Rather, each approach offers different advantages along with their own flaws so that the most effective overall regime of research takes place when they work together. David Altschul offered some thoughts on this interdependence in a way that reminded me of that conversation that I had with my quantitative identical twin. There is a tremendous amount of pressure to collect and analyze data these days. And there are a lot of businesses that would love nothing more than to find the way through that would allow the data to answer all the problems. They could just collect the right data and analyze it properly and apply it effectively. They wouldn't need to tell stories. They wouldn't need to invent stuff. They wouldn't need to be creative. They would simply know you well enough to offer you exactly what you want, just when you want it, at the price that you're willing to pay, and never waste your time or their money trying to sell you something that you weren't about to buy. And I think that that's a fantasy. I think that the reliance on data only underscores the critical role of story in making that data useful and meaningful. Okay, so we can't simply make 
big data bigger and expect meaningful insight to miraculously emerge from our analytics. What is the proper relationship between qualitative and quantitative research methods then? Like me, David has a lot to learn from his brother. You know, I learned about this from my brother, who is an archaeologist. So he's a legitimate social scientist. And I, this was 15 years ago. I already had clients who I thought were misusing the tools of social science to try to get more quickly to answers that seemed questionable or superficial to me. And I said, uh, you know, what is the appropriate role of quantitative analysis in the social sciences? And he said, well, the most important mentor of mine, first thing he taught me was that in the social sciences, any question that you could answer by quantitative analysis alone was a trivial question. And I said, well, that's certainly congruent with my experience with some of what I see as the misuse of science by some of my marketing clients. So I said, well, what are you doing then? Why are you out there with your surveying equipment measuring the distance from the fire pit to the pot shards and mapping it on your computer or whatever the hell you're doing? And he said, well, here's the point. He said, if you do the quantitative analysis well, the numbers reveal patterns that are not visible to the naked eye. And out of those patterns, you develop a hypothesis about the possible meaning of the patterns in the numbers. Well, that hypothesis is a story. That's what a hypothesis is. It's the story that the social scientist is telling themselves about the possible meaning in those patterns that appear in the numbers. And then if you're a good scientist, you say, okay, well, if that were true, then such and such ought to also be true. And you go out and you invent another study and you collect some more data and you analyze it. And so there's a virtuous cycle between data and story when both are used appropriately. Absent story, you're just racing with your competition to collect insights about the category as a whole, which is only driving you further and further toward the commodity position. David Altschul takes us from the naive belief that a data-driven business strategy leads us in a straight line to success, to a virtuous cycle in which we alternate between data and story, with the pair driving business forward in a meaningful direction. Reflecting back on what Jeff Kaufman told us earlier, it seems clear that artificial intelligence will be an awesome tool in the future once its glitches are resolved, but it still won't provide everything we need. Human researchers will always be necessary to provide the beautiful stories and stupid curiosity, the interest that propels inquiry forward, resolving the data provided by AI into stories that are culturally relevant to our subjective experience. One of the methods that can take human research beyond the level of work that can be replicated by computers is ethnography. Anthropologist Thomas Maschio has practiced ethnography to study both the traditional cultures found in the small villages of New Guinea and to understand Americans' relationships with their cats. In both instances, ethnography revealed surprising meaning in everyday things by removing the obscuring filter of familiarity. It brings up this um, the point about kind of everyday things. And what an anthropologist has to do in some ways is... Um, distance himself from the ordinariness of things and, and and try to kind of reframe reframe these things and uh, objects, commodities, products, services, experiences, defamiliarize himself with them, and especially if he's working in his own culture, and then defamiliarize himself, take a step back and try to like in gestalt psychology, look at the, the object in a new way. And you almost have to put yourself or imagine yourself being in a Papua New Guinean village when you're in someone's home talking to them about their cat. <laughs> you have to look at them as uh, having interesting things to say about an interesting topic. And so 
pets and, and cats are kind of one of those things where I found myself having to kind of defamiliarize myself with what was going on and just take a new look at people's relationship with their pets. So with cats in particular, people feel that cats put them in touch with their own animal kind of nature, enabling them to experience simple animal contentment, such as when their cats sit on their laps praying. But I think beyond that, cats fascinate their owners because they seem to possess some uncanny, exotic, magical quality. And though my respondents weren't familiar with the idea, I would say that they perceived that their cats possessed something called mana. It's a religious concept that represents the principles of efficacy and power, and people often describe their cats as extraordinarily kind of efficacious animals. People seem to, to be saying that their cats introduced a sense of wonder or kind of sacredness in their every, to their everyday lives, which was, you know, something that I, I felt that I really had to pursue. And I, I watched people become very emotionally engaged. Emotional engagement is just what businesses have lost as they've moved to automate their operations and customer service. Ethnography exposes researchers to emotional engagement through an often overwhelming immersion in the field of study. What is ethnography, though? A whole lot of people in the business world describe the research they do as ethnography. They'll take a camera to a location for a few hours and call it ethnography. They'll interview someone in their home instead of a dedicated research facility and call it ethnography. Some firms have even developed software systems, automated, that they refer to as digital ethnography, though they consist of nothing more than systems for researchers to chat with people remotely as research participants upload photographs and videos they've taken of their own activities. Ethnography is something more than all of that. Many different research methods can be used as a part of ethnography, some of them quantitative. But what sets true ethnography apart from the many pseudo-ethnographies being hawked by market research firms these days is a certain ethos that can be boiled down to the following fundamental characteristics. 1. Ethnography studies culture, not just objects or behaviors. Culture is the collective sense of meaning that a group of people follow. It shapes their behaviors and influences their selection and use of objects. Two, ethnography includes some aspect of participant observation. An ethnographer needs to spend some time in the cultural setting being studied. That setting could be online, but presence and participation is essential. Three, ethnography is performed slowly over a long period of time. An hour, a day, or a week isn't enough to gain the sense of a culture. Ethnography is often performed in the accumulation of inquiry across several shorter episodes of research over the course of many years. Four, Ethnography adopts the perspective of the insider-outsider. This is what Thomas Maschio refers to as the process of defamiliarization. This process involves self-examination on the part of the researcher and the careful consideration on multiple conceptions of what the culture being studied is really up to. Five. Ethnography is an interpretive craft, studying subjective beliefs and practices, and so needs to include thick, qualitative methods. Ethnography is a demanding practice, but Thomas Maschio has seen the investment pay off for his clients in business. Only a thick, dedicated process of inquiry like ethnography can provide the level of human insight that enables businesses to break out of the trap of commoditization. Especially when I, I first started this work, um, it's kind of, strangely enough, a kind of 
commoditization of the commodity, which I, I had to break past. And people, marketers, um, could be fairly demoralized uh, in their own kind of business life. And, and how, they, how do they demoralize themselves? They do it by taking a commoditized view of their commodity um, and not seeing the kind of meaningful dimensions of it. So my project, my brief, my goal in any of these projects really is to show the human meaning, reframe business problems as human phenomena, as um, social and human phenomena, and um, meaningful phenomena. You, you get them out of a kind of linear way of thinking, step A, A to B to C, and just kind of place them in that, that field as if they're, they're living or swimming in a, a new kind of sea, a consumer sea of meanings. That's kind of the first step, I think, in so getting them to slow down and, and understand. Research itself is a cultural practice. It's a form of ritual experience that, like a vision quest, blends outward exploration with self-discovery. The point of research isn't just to gain information. It's a rite of passage that shifts our identity, teaching us how to swim in a new sea of meaning. Ethnography isn't the only form of rigorously human qualitative research being practiced in commercial settings. Tanya Rhoda Milans and I have worked together using a special technique for psychologically penetrating interviews that finds its power in the cultivation of a radically open methodology that makes it more of an art than a science. It's called emotional immersion. The research that I do is very exploratory and I approach every new project with an open mind. Just being humble enough to go in thinking that you really don't know anything until you actually talk to the people that had those experiences. If you're not going in trying to control every single outcome, you can allow yourself to just listen and be open to what the experiences might bring. Um, that's how you can get something that's more creative and something that has a bit more soul. And uh, if you're very restrictive and assume that you know everything going in, then what's the point of doing research anyway? If you have the information you need, you should just move forward with your strategy. Um, but if you believe that you are in need of some additional information and knowledge that you currently don't have, then you also have to admit that you don't know. And you have to go in with that kind of a mindset. Um, I would say an open mindset is quite common in the art world and in the creative world, but sometimes you don't see that in um, the business world as well. So for example, with my art projects, um, when I approach a new project, there's a lot of trial and error and a lot of experimentation. And that's part of what I really like about that side of my life. Uh, there really are no expectations and things don't need to be perfect all the time. Um, I get to try new things that I've never done before, uh, maybe work with a new material or a new tool that I've never used before. And I would just say, as soon as I walk into the studio, there are no rules. I mean, really, when I'm in the studio, I can mix, mix materials, I can do whatever I want, however I want it. And that, I think, allows me to come up with things that I would have never come up with if I had very strict rules and boundaries um, and I, or if I had been told uh, that, oh no, you can never ever mix this kind of paint with this kind of pigment. Well, why not, you know? Um, that's what I believe the research that, um, that we do is like. I think, um, you know, when you're doing uh, this kind of research, um, you are kind of experimenting a bit. It is exploratory in nature because you just really never know what people are gonna tell you. Um, and I have been in projects where I thought I knew quite a bit about a particular topic or I thought, uh, this is going to be a little bit boring, I'm not really interested in this at all. And then all of a sudden you start listening to the people's stories and why things matter to them and you change your mind. You know, by the time you're in uh, the project, you have a very different perception of the topic and the people involved in it. So whether it's a product or a medical condition, whatever the project might be, 
you now have a very different level of understanding. And, and I would say in a way you are changed by listening to those stories. The more you listen, the harder it is for you to cast judgment and the more empathy you have for the people that you're interviewing. And I don't think that happens if you're not going in with an open mind um, and you're not going in allowing yourself to be changed. If you have a certain rigidity about the overall process, it's going to be really hard for you to actually learn something. Allowing your product team to be changed isn't the sort of thing that you'll commonly see amongst the research objectives for project designs. But it's actually one of the most important functions of research in the business world. When corporate clients take the time to actually participate in field research rather than just watching remotely through a video networking service, they can emerge from the experience transformed. Human research isn't just about obtaining information. It's a psychological process that enables participants to become open to new ideas, to work with them. That's especially important in the business world because corporations are so effective at instituting management structures that ensure compliance to a fault. It's important for corporations to establish organizational cohesion, of course, but that kind of social cohesion makes it extremely difficult to come up with truly new ideas or to challenge old ideas that aren't working out so well anymore. Research in the field can provide an important break in the corporate routine, a pause from the ordinary rhythms that maintain the solid business orthodoxy and allow it to become more fluid. The interviewing methodology Tanya and I have worked with together, Emotional Immersion, is designed to heighten this alternative frame of mind by immersing everyone involved, from the people being interviewed to the clients themselves, in the emotional reality of the people being studied. As Tanya explains, that emotional reality is often quite different from what's been predicted by clients' data analytics. I think this happens every time I do a project. You see people being moved and touched by what other people have to say about a particular topic all the time. Um, and that's always really encouraging to me because I really don't think this is happening enough um, that we get those kind of intimate moments of compassion with the people that ultimately are using the products we make or engaging with the companies we work for. So during the course of research, I see people building that connection um, just by listening to what uh, the customers have to say. They're having an experience um, that I don't think is happening as often as it should, and that changes their perception of what they do, how they do it, and most importantly, why they do it. Seeing people in the business world that might have a certain idea of how to go about research or why they should be doing research in the first place, and seeing them be changed by having gone through this process, that's something that I really like to see. That's one of the reasons why I like doing this work, because it's exciting and rewarding. I mean, not only being able to give voice to people that oftentimes don't really have a voice in the business world by interviewing them and sharing their stories, but also by seeing the ripple effect that that voice can have. Our job is to give them a voice that will linger for a very long time as their stories are being told and retold and remembered. Uh, being able to collect those stories, see the patterns and turn them into something that's going to have a positive impact in a business and seeing what it does to the people in that business, that's very rewarding. The hope is that those voices would have, you know, that kind of ripple effect of source that those that have been involved in a project and they listen to those stories would tell those stories to somebody else and that as a result people will act differently that uh, perhaps as a company they will have a different kind of interaction internally with each other and externally with their customers that's my little contribution 
to making things change over time um, just by being able to do this work. How does this kind of transformation of perspective Tanya describes take place within a research project? Just listening to customers' opinions isn't enough. If that were sufficient, businesses could simply rely on survey data. The thing is, consumer psychology isn't as simple as what a direct approach to questioning can reveal. As experienced business leaders know, you can't just ask people why they buy what they do and expect to come up with a useful model of marketplace behavior. In order to begin to understand where consumers are really coming from, it's important to take an indirect, oblique approach to inquiry by not asking people point blank about what we want to know. We're not just asking yes or no questions or collecting specific information. Um, we're not even collecting data or I would say simply gathering a lot of information. We're going in with the idea of understanding what their stories are. Just that. It's really quite simple, really. Um, these are not random stories, but stories connected with the category or the product we're studying. However, we don't uh, ask direct questions and we let people self-select the stories that really matter the most to them. Um, and it might sound like a more roundabout way to get at the knowledge we might be seeking, but it's a much more human way to get at it. Um, it's really hard to understand somebody by having a quick two-minute conversation where you're asking 20,000 questions. You know, a much better way to get to know somebody is to go and have dinner and hang out with them for a weekend. Just talk to them about what life is like for them. It's a different kind of interaction. And the research we do um, is closer to spending time with people. But you kind of condense that uh, same idea in about an hour rather than spending the weekend with them. Uh, this is the kind of research that wants to get to know you. It's not the kind of research that is looking for you to say something we want you to say. And so in getting to know somebody, you just never know what you're going to find out. And that's what's exciting about this kind of work. But it can also be scary for some people because, you know, what if what we find out about these people is not in alignment with what we've been doing for the last 20 years? What some people see as roundabout, others understand as well-rounded. Remember, research is a circle, not a square. Besides, it's not just information that we're seeking when we perform emotional immersion. It's an experience. Why go beachcombing for seashells when you can just order them online? Why attend a concert in person when you can watch the same musicians on YouTube? The obvious answer is that sometimes the thing that we're looking for is not really what we're seeking. In cinematic language, we find ourselves after a MacGuffin. Here we get back to the power of story. A MacGuffin is an object that is valuable mostly because it propels a story forward. The classic MacGuffin is the Maltese Falcon, a statue in a classic Humphrey Bogart movie of the same name. Everybody in the movie is seeking the Maltese Falcon, but what happens with the characters in the movie is driven by the conflict created by that desire. It doesn't really matter what the Maltese Falcon is in the end. What matters is the extreme behaviors that people are driven to because of their desire for it. Furthermore, the desire for the Maltese Falcon is really just a means to another end. Different characters have agendas driven by their emotional and social needs. It's what they dream of doing after their search for the Maltese Falcon is over that drives them. Much in the same way that researchers are always seeking to pursue another question after their initial questions are answered. Often, commerce is the same way. What we're seeking when we purchase a product or service isn't the product or service itself. 
It's the further pursuit that we hope the product or service will enable us to engage in. There is no real end in this pursuit. Every purchase is just one step further along an emotional journey. There are some imperfect analogs in traditional pre-commercial cultures to this pursuit, such as pilgrimages and vision quests. But the repeated ritual of searching in both commerce and research is unique to commercial culture. Emotional immersion takes advantage of the repetitive, circular nature of this experience by leading participants in a unique mental journey across space and time, revisiting emotionally poignant moments to reflect upon their meaning. I talked with Doug Grant, the founder of Inqui, about how this works. Yeah, I'm Doug Grant. Uh, I'm the managing director of Inqui Research. And I've been doing this for 30 years or so. I usually, when I talk about Inqui, I tell people that um, we focus on memory retrieval research, um, where we do in-depth interviews with a very specific method that helps get past all of the unconscious barriers, that helps people to tell their story in kind of an authentic way. A lot of the people that I speak with, a lot of the insights uh, professionals are used to a lot of research methods that are rather shallow and they get, they ask direct questions and get answers, but the answers often aren't the answers they need. They don't go to any level of depth. People talk in scripts and they talk around what's really driving them. And a lot of times they don't even really know what's driving them. So we use a memory to bring those memories back, you know, to the surface so that we can kind of relive those moments with people and by doing so better understand them and understand their needs and understand what drives them and hopefully understands what how we can serve them a little bit better. When you're talking about memory retrieval, it almost sounds like what you might do with the computer where you have active memory and databases of information and the computer just needs to retrieve the information. So what's different about the memory retrieval research that you're doing with emotional immersion that makes it anything better than just going and getting a bunch of data from a computer? Yeah, it's funny. I hadn't really thought of it in, in that sense. And I mean, I guess in some sense, you could actually say that's a, a fair comparison, but it doesn't get at the heart of the issue I think when we go back to these memories, we're actually bringing back, you know, we're, we're bringing back what makes us human and what, where our passions lie and where these key moments that influenced us in, in some way um, that might have changed us in some way. So in many ways, when we're doing this work, you know, it's like a little mental time machine of some sort where you're going to go back in time. And in terms of the data that we're presenting, it would be really more like playing a movie for someone um, and bringing a story to life that might not have been seen otherwise. So it's the, yeah, yes, actually we are retrieving data, but we're tre retrieving it in its form of stories and of, um, and we're reconnecting with the emotions there uh, to bring it to life versus other ways that might be really, kind of um, surface, be shallow, where people just don't bring that richness. It's kind of like providing someone with uh, handing over your diary to someone to read versus doing checkbox on a form. It's, it's like that kind of level of, of difference. The thing that Doug is getting at here gets back to the difference between search and research, but it goes further than that. Emotional immersion is about taking the subjective nature of qualitative research much further than traditional qualitative market research methods can go. Emotional immersion works by getting people to articulate the subjective passions that drive their stories of consumption forward. What's essential to understand is that the insights gathered through emotional immersion are, as stories, fictions. Methodologies that preceded emotional immersion sought to use the visualization process to gain access to what psychologists called flashbulb memories. 
picture-perfect recollections of past events that were imprinted permanently in the mind by intensely emotional experiences, or so we thought. What we've learned since then is that flashbulb memories actually contain significant errors. These errors are revisions to the original memory, introduced according to subsequent reinterpretations of the event that is being revisualized. The trick to emotional immersion is that an accurate memory of past events doesn't give us the most accurate model of why consumers behave in the ways that they do. That's because, as research debunking the idea of flashbulb memories has shown, we make decisions in the present based on inaccurate recreations of the past, not on the actual events of the past. What this means is that even if we were to collect perfectly accurate information about consumers' past experiences through a form of big data that was made really, really big, we still wouldn't grasp what was actually motivating consumers' choices. That's because the structures of motivation are reshaped in consumers' minds independently of external reality. To get the real story, we need to explore the strange, fluid world of human subjectivity, where errors in memory are at least as informative as the facts of the matter. It's weird, I know, but that's what lets you know that it reflects what's really driving consumer behavior. So think of the people that you know. I mean the ones that you really know, beyond the conventional exterior that they present to the world at large. I'm talking about people like your siblings, or your uncles, your spouse, your own children, or friends you've known since childhood. What do they all have in common? What do you know about them that the world at large does not know? They are all weird. Every human being is weird. If a person isn't weird, that in itself is weird. This simple characteristic of human beings is what's being missed by the standard quantitative and qualitative approaches to market research. People are weird, but they don't show their weirdness to just anyone at any time. They don't show the weird in surveys. They don't let it out during focus groups. And people definitely don't display the true weirdness of themselves on their carefully curated Instagram feeds. We are all so busy trying to appear professional in our business lives, trying to appear normal, even though we know that we're really not that we have created a bias in business against acknowledging how weird human beings are. What this means, however, is that businesses that use human research methods to understand the strangeness of subjective human experience will have a distinct advantage over their competitors who continue to insist that people are predictably rational. The fatal flaw with the machine learning models businesses are using to try to predict human behavior is that they're using data that has had most of the human weirdness filtered out of it. It's no wonder that data-driven businesses routinely discover that their predictive models miss essential aspects of true human behavior. The problem isn't that businesses just need to gather more data. The problem is that understanding the bizarre reality of being human requires something deeper than data. It requires shared experiences through which empathy can be established, and that only happens in special circumstances during which people feel free to interact human to human, weirdo to weirdo. It takes unusually dedicated and patient research techniques like genuine ethnography and emotional immersion to uncover the lovable freak hiding in each and every one of us. 
These unorthodox methodologies work because they themselves are strange. And by being strange, they open up doorways to experiences of human strangeness that straight and narrow research methodologies just can't get at. What these human research methods have in common is that they work by using the structure of ritual. The secret structure of ritual in business, operating for both consumers and in corporate life, is the subject of next week's episode of This Human Business. Come back around and listen next Wednesday, and bring along a friend. After all, building community around bizarre moments is what ritual is really all about. The music you're hearing now, and at the opening of the episode, is from the artist Maidan, from the album For Creators. The song is called Underwater. Underwater.